0: This episode of the Larb Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Hemlock Printers. In the printing world, it's difficult to find a combination of quality printing and sustainability, but Hemlock Printers excels at both. Their zero-carbon neutral printing program renders print projects carbon neutral, with offset purchases helping important forest conservation projects around the world. Hemlock is a family-owned, sustainability-driven printing company Printing and distributing some of North America's best indie publications, including the LARB's print magazine, the LARB Quarterly. Hemlock can give you the highest quality printing with the lowest environmental footprint.
1: Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Joanna Biggs about her book, A Life of One's Own, Nine Women Writers Begin Again.
2: Yeah, I was really excited to talk to her about this book. I thought even when I first opened it and I saw just a list of first names, I think it said Simone... Mary, Tony, and I thought it was so familial and casual and it just struck like a, such a f- exciting note for me to feel like I was with a group of very very smart women. <laughs> it felt felt nice to be included in that way.
1: Yeah, I agree and it's the book is kind of like hybrid form between memoir essay, but it doesn't make too much of a point of what it is. It all kind of flows together, just like life and work flow together. And I think it's honest to the way people read, because sometimes when you're in a crisis or you're dealing with questions of of how to be, you look to books to help you and you look to writers and you look to people you respect and you want to know, oh, well, what do they do in their lives? I mean, I always have done yeah. that my whole life, comparing myself to the people I've read or Looking at how they lived and asking myself if it could be instructive for me. So I thought that this kind of mirrors that experience.
2: Yeah, me too. And, you know, I think one of the things that I think when you are in a crisis, there's ways in which, or at least I have found this to be true, that there's like ways in which you begin to feel alive again or that you begin to feel excited again or yourself again. And I've also found that. The main way that I found how to do that is through books. Maybe I need more hobbies.
1: <laughs> maybe maybe I could also do it through ceramics. Yeah. Well, I guess you like what you like. What can you do? But It's true. You know what? For other people who are like us and love books, I want to highlight that this is the first week of our member drive here at the Los Angeles Review of Books and where a reader and listener supported the learning nonprofit and join us this june at lareviewofbooks.org/join during this summer membership drive to help us keep delivering on LARP's mission of providing the very best in criticism, poetry, fiction and more and if you join this month you will get a special edition larb hat in addition to other perks, including a subscriptions to the LARB quarterly uh, LARB canvas tote bag, a discount card good at our network of partnering indie bookstores and invitations to our member only events all year long. So consider joining. Sounds great. And that hat is really something special. I love a hat. Me too. Especially in the summer.
2: You got to get that hat in the summer you got to get that hat, especially if your bangs are weird.
1: (laughs) We're both in that category, so I guess (laughs) we'll be cool. (laughs)
2: We're we're the target
1: audience. (laughs) But for now, let's listen to our interview with Joanna Biggs. Let's do it.
2: Today, we're joined by editor and writer Joanna Biggs, whose new book is called A Life of One's Own. Nine women writers begin again. Joanna is an editor at Harper's Magazine, and her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Nation, The Financial Times, and The Guardian. She is also the co founder of the feminist publishing house Silver Press. In her new book, Joanna is attempting to recalibrate her life after a divorce. She turns to literature and specifically to nine different women writers and philosophers, ranging from Mary Wollstonecraft to Sylvia Plath to Toni Morrison. To Elena Ferrante. In exploring their lives and their work, Joanna finds radical ways to live and examples of women figuring out their own paths outside of domestic and societal expectations. With the help of their writing and their example, Joanna slowly starts to find a new sense of self. She writes, I was alone in many ways, but in my reading, I had company for the big questions. We're happy to have Joanna's company
1: here with us today. Joanna,
2: thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, I thought we could start just by talking about the form of this book, you know, because it's neither straight criticism nor a straight memoir. And I feel that it was written very much out of a need, an emotional need for what you're writing. so i'm I'm curious if you could talk about just how you conceived of the shape of the book and um what you were hoping it would do, even if just for yourself, right. Yes. It did
3: come out of a need. Yeah, it was exactly this sort of moment in my life where there were lots of things that were going wrong. (laughs) It wasn't just one. I was divorcing my mother. We just discovered she was ill with Alzheimer's. I'd come to a point where I guess I had to work out if I was going to have children or not and what sort of life I wanted to live and what sort of writing I wanted to do. And I just felt sort of lost and confused. And so I guess I did the thing that I guess I was always taught to do when I was younger. I went to books. I went back to things I knew. I went towards new things. I was having all these conversations with friends about what they were doing with these questions and what they were reading and all of that sort of thing. It was all thinking about that, really. And I wasn't thinking I needed to write a genre in a particular genre or a particular way. I was thinking I needed to get closer to things and I needed to be more honest about the critic that was coming towards the writing. I didn't want to be, I felt more and more strongly about this as I went along. And as that, I wanted to bring my experience and what was going on in my life to the page a bit more and be more honest about that. I was always taught at university that you weren't supposed to do that, that you were supposed to be pulling back, using your knowledge of history, using your knowledge of criticism, of, of, Poetic form, all of that on the page and showing that off and using it in particular ways. And I started to feel a bit like I didn't need to do that in the same way anymore. And that actually that was going against what some of the writers were trying to do. I'm glad you see his essays are not biblio memoir It wasn't supposed to be a memoir It was really trying to look at them in a new way, not trying to sort of disguise my life or something. It was a more like an attempt to be honest as opposed to trying to shoehorn my life into other people's, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think um, there's a way in which you're being honest about, or at least very forthright about what you are wanting from these women's books and their lives, as opposed to just allowing that to kind of be implied. You're bringing your own life questions to bear on the page. And those two things are kind of cross-pollinating in this book.
3: Yeah, I suppose it's a kind of, I guess I never try to lose sight of myself as a critic, I suppose, when I'm on the page and always trying to look at sentences and think clearly about what they were trying to do as well as what I'm trying to find out. I hope I don't, I'm not trying to hide that.
2: Much of this book that struck me while reading it is, is actually about grief and mourning and trying to figure out ways to move past different kinds of loss. You begin the book with talking about your divorce, your mother grows ill and and dies within the space of the book. So sort of related, I want to go back to those things and those the bigger losses in the book, but I wonder if one of them is also sort of grieving or letting go of the kind of critic you thought you were supposed to be or the kind of writer you you thought you were supposed to be. Was that like a hard transition for you to accept maybe that you're going to do a different kind of writing. You're going to do a different kind of work than the kind you grew up understanding you should do.
3: It's funny because I sort of, one of the things I thought was daring for me, and maybe it doesn't come across quite the same in the book, but it felt like it for me was putting down some of this critical armor I was taught at university. And we were not allowed to read biographically. We were not allowed to use a writer's life in their book and to be able to say kind of quite earlier in the book, the second essay on George Eliot to say, I don't think that's what Eliot meant. <laughs> you know, I don't think she meant us to not think about our lives as we read Middlemarch. And that felt for me like a great rebellion. And I, because I was very grateful, I had a great education. It gave me great, a huge amount of confidence. I would never be where I am if I hadn't gone to Oxford University, but I did started to feel when I was older, this just isn't, that some of my teenage readings of books were much closer to what a writer would have wanted me to take from it. And that in reading critical texts and kind of keeping up with the boys, I'd sort of forgotten all of the, forgotten to read the way I naturally did when I was younger, and I was much more interested in doing that again. There's a brilliant quote by Annie Erno where she talks about being divorced and is like circling back to when she's a teenager and that she's kind of running around in heels and falling over and reading and staying up all night and reading and dancing. And that really resonated with me. It was like a circling back to when I was a teenager. So actually I feel like in this book, one of the things I'm trying to do is kind of read back through tradition and see what sort of writing I'll do afterwards. I'm working on a novel and that I'm teaching myself and trying to use them all the women in the book as kind of encouragement encouragement is that word but anyway I'm just trying to write differently I suppose and engage with the world differently and use my writing like directly on my life in a different way
1: the women that you're writing about many of them started the work that they would be much the most known for later in life they you know even the title of your book is kind of referencing Finding a life, and not to say that the earlier lives are insignificant, but I think it here the models that you're drawing from are people who didn't burn hot right in their 20s and then never write anything else. It's that they kind of apprenticed into these big books that they wrote later. So maybe you could talk about some of the timelines that are referenced and some of the writers that you cover here and kind of when in their lives they blossomed and wrote these books that we all know at this point?
3: I was thinking a lot about where I was in my life and where they were in their lives and taking a lot of comfort from it. I, ne- I never felt that I burned hot at 20. I'm a very, very sort of slow person. Everything takes me like a much longer than the rest of my friends. Like I. Yeah, I've just remembered my whole life has been like that. And I think it's a theme in women's lives historically anyway. Obviously, women writers, all of these women were working in literary millions that were dominated by men and women had... Children or didn't have children, but all had to stay home. Elliot, the one of the reasons why Elliot started to stay late is because she's religious and looked after the family when her mother died, and that's why she started late. With same actually with Wollstonecraft, even though she died at thirty eight, she had to take care of the family and a dying friend and all sorts of other things. Have children on her own, like she did a huge amount of stuff before she started writing. So I think women's lives have always been a little bit like that, and especially historically, for obvious reasons. But it made me think, I know, I don't want to Madonnaise all these women, but the point is, is there's, you can always choose to start again and begin again. Like, it, you know, Elliot must have thought, I'm never going to get to do this. And coming up to London and being a journalist and thinking, I'm never going to get to write the fiction. And then suddenly she does, you know, and she could imagine if she hadn't. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I guess I'm trying to hold open for the reader the possibility that you can, Always begin again, and it's not easy. And but you can. And there are counter examples in the book because I write about Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath, and both of their lives ended early, and you know they decided to end them themselves early. And I often think about Plath, particularly, but I often think about what would have happened if they had faith that they could have begun again. You know, they would have written extraordinary things.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your the beginning of this book and your sort of beginning again. Can you? Talk a little bit about what the catalyst was for you feeling like you needed a change and you were finally ready for one. You were going to do it no matter how painful it ended up being.
3: It's funny because I thought a lot about this in the lead up to this book being published and I'm still in therapy. So don't worry, guys. I'm going to find some other, you know, you have to take that, go that journey with me. But um, I don't know I fully understood it entirely when I was doing it I just felt very strongly that things had to change and it was a little bit of a mess for a while and that's why that's what definitely one of the reasons for this book that I would go out and do some living and it would be all all over the place and a bit messy and then I would think okay oh something's going wrong it doesn't feel good and almost like retreat and read and think and then try again so there would be these cycles I mean I haven't they're not kind of explicitly in the book but I felt like that was going on and yeah i I don't know I I can't say that I fully understand exactly what it was that made me want to change, but I just felt it very strongly. And I just started making the changes and then suddenly you're on a completely different path.
1: You don't say this explicitly in the book, and this is just completely my inference, but I wonder, I do think that this idea of women, especially being washed up at a certain age, let's say 40 is based on an idea of what women's value is, you know, like, If women's main value is their sex appeal or their ability to bear children, it would make sense that by midlife, yeah, society doesn't have much use for them. And I wonder if that's something a lot of these women, not only did they start writing some of them later in life, but many of them also had relationships with much younger men later in life. In their lives, George Eliot, I was happy to see when she was 60, finally married someone who was 40. I mean, Zora Neale Hurston as well. So there was that defiance of expectations, but just this idea that we put a finite date on women's lives in a way that I don't think that men have. I wonder if if that was something that came to you at all in, in terms of what we expect from women. Why wouldn't you have like a whole second half of your life? Totally. I mean, it's so hopeful, isn't
3: it? All those things. You're, I wanted to add Simone de Beauvoir falling madly in love with Nelson Algren and her like early 40s, the same thing. As listening to you, I was thinking, God, we do this to ourselves, don't we? We pretend that older women are not attractive to younger men. That's not true. They clearly are. Um, we pretend that intellectual women aren't attractive to men. That's not true. They very clearly are. Like I, all those kind of articles that say, oh, I... I became too successful and I got dumped. Like, I don't know that that's true. I think, like, there is sort of hope There are like, I think Beauvoir is one of the sexiest women that's ever existed, you know, because she lives so fully, like, in terms of her philosophy, in terms of her fiction, in terms of her life, in terms of her political engagement. All of these things, uh, I think, are really inspiring. And I wonder, like yeah, it's very easy to open a newspaper or go online and see lots of beautiful young women and think, oh, that's the only way to be a woman. It's just not true. (laughs) It's just not true. And it's really nice to be able to share some stories, real life examples of women who wrote and lived and thought way past kind of 40. You
1: know, in the same regard, I wondered, Something that comes up often, and you even referenced it when you're talking about reading books closer to the way that you did when you were in high school, as opposed to your critical training at Oxford, is this idea of what has more value, you know, intellectual reasoning or emotion? What is a great work of art at its highest? You know, it's moving people. That's something that Mary Wilson Craft said that she thought emotion had more value than pure reason, possibly. And you even talk about reading middle March and expecting it to be this like heavy intellectual tome and that instead it was um, like watching a soap opera and that you felt yourself so spellbound by it and wanting to get back to it and finding pleasure, so much pleasure in it. And um, that's something else I wondered about these kind of you know emotion, pleasure these things that have maybe more of a feminine valence and your investigation of the importance of them for the writers that you cover and for yourself?
3: Well, yeah, I'm just thinking um, when I was trying to explain like what, why I knew or how I knew I wanted to change and this kind of oscillation between just knowing and feeling and trying things and then coming back and analyzing it. And I sort of think they always work together, those two things. Like you don't want a writer who is is never moved by anything or has never feelings about anything. I don't, I'm not sure I want to read that. I I want them always to be coupled. I'm thinking as well of Sora Neale Hurston, that she had this academic side when she was collecting stories from the kind of community she grew up in, in Florida. But her novel that we all know her for is this kind of capturing of the relationships that she was having. And it's a love story. It's like a triple love story. Their eyes are watching God. And I I think they do have to go together and I think that's one thing women's writing can do can do that men might find harder to do and it's a great advantage and it is one of the reasons I love the particular writers I've chosen I think that all of them have that I mean some of them you know Morrison is often criticized for being too lyrical and I sometimes think oh she's so hard-headed like they go together completely the kind of literary sensibility and the kind of attention to sentences and the structure as well as the um, feeling of saying talking about love
1: listening to the larb radio hour we've been speaking with joanna biggs author of a life of one's own we'll return to that conversation in just a moment but first we have this week's book recommendation Gary Indiana on the line. He is the author of many novels and books of short stories, memoir, criticism. His novel, Do Everything in the Dark, was just reissued by Semiotext, and he's here to give me a book recommendation.
0: Gary. Okay, the book I want to recommend is called The Age of Skin, and it's collected essays of a writer named Rafka Ugressic, Her first name is D-U-B-R-A-V-K-A. Her last name is spelled U-G-R-E-S-I-C. She's a Croatian writer who lives in Amsterdam. She left what was Yugoslavia when all the wars broke out in the Balkans and um, ended up living in Amsterdam for the last 30 years, I guess. She just recently died. These are all things about displacement and refugees and... um, you know, having to operate in a different culture than your own and just the quality of observation in it is really, really good and lovely. So I would highly recommend this book.
1: How did you come across this book?
0: I had never heard of this writer. And then a few days ago, there was something somewhere that I read that she had just died and somebody was saying these wonderful things about her. I honestly can't remember where I saw it, whether it was New Left Review or someplace else. But I thought I should check that out. And so I ordered these books. And she's a novelist primarily, but I also got the essays because I like to read novelist essays. And, you know, that's how. I just stumbled upon it by chance. Apparently, she was very well known, but I didn't know her. I didn't know of her.
1: And she's mostly writing about, in those essays, her experience living outside of her
0: home country or? Some of the essays are set in New York and some of them are set in Amsterdam. Some are set in Croatia. You know, very trenchant and very, very smart about politics and the monstrosities that we live in, that we live with.
1: Okay, well, that sounds like a good recommendation. Could you tell me the author and the title of the book one more time?
0: Dubrovka Ugressic. And I think that's how it's pronounced. And it's called The Age of Skin.
1: Thank you so much, Gary, for coming back. Thank you. That was Gary Indiana. His novel, Do Everything in the Dark, was just reissued by Senior Text. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Joanna Biggs, author of A Life of One's Own. Each chapter in the book is
2: titled by the first name of each writer. So you have Mary, George, Simone, Zora, Tony. And it struck me that it felt a little bit like it's a little bit unusual to see that, right? Yet generally you might have the full name or the author's last name. And it struck me it felt a little bit like sort of like a gathering of friends. You had this like casual relationship to each author. Once you reach the end of the book, I think that you sort of actually make that kind of explicit but I wonder how you gathered these writers how you landed on each one because some of them you as you write you hadn't actually read until relatively recently
3: yeah I thought very carefully about this um, I think I hope it doesn't feel disrespectful not to use their full names and treat them as the writers they are I They just became like that to me. Like I was living, I was reading so much of them, and I would say Sylvia thinks this, and Simone did that, and Tony thinks this, and I would just use it. They just became very familiar. They did really feel like they were um, close to me. I tried an extra conclusion to the book. I didn't end up using it, but where we were sort of all at dinner party together, and I was trying to write that dinner party and who would be cooking and what who would be annoyed with X or Y. It didn't work, but. It was an idea of that, that we're all friends in some way. That isn't to say I think I'm the same sort of writer as (laughs) Ginger Wolf. It's not a comparison in that sort of way. It's more like I needed them to be close to me. I needed to hear from them. And how did I choose it? Well, I thought about lots of different things. I thought particularly what would happen if I started in the 18th century and ended right now. I wanted to take a reader who hadn't heard of any of these people and just take them always through women's writing and start with someone you know the 18th century women were incredibly bold the 19th you get people like Austin and Brontes who are not even using their full names into the mid-century you're dealing with women kind of like starting to come into themselves but usually just being like Wolf and Plath like one among loads of other men and then you've got someone towards the end you've got Morrison and Elena Ferrante where women's voices are really being understood and heard so I wanted to do that I also chose, I wanted to have this feeling of discovery for myself. So people that I was going back to that I knew, but also people that I didn't quite know what would happen and that there were gaps. I did have problems with them. I found with Wolf, I'd gone back and forward. She's so towering. I found it quite intimidating to read her. And then I read To the Lighthouse again. And I was like, oh my God, I get this. This is so beautiful and straightforward and a completely different sort of novel than I thought it was. So I think I wanted that sense of discovery for myself. It's maybe a bit selfish. I wanted to include people that I didn't know as well.
2: I really want to hear about the dinner party um <laughs> since we don't don't actually get it in the book. who's cooking and who's annoying everybody else
3: well, like Simone doesn't cook, I don't think
2: I mean she, she doesn't, doesn't just, seem like she cooks
3: no, 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 I don't think she cooked her whole life, and but, you know some people are just much more eager than others god i because i didn't I didn't like it in the end and didn't use it, I've sort of played with it a bit but Elia doesn't turn up of course <laughs> it doesn't even cover <laughs> but yeah there's a great play by carol churchill top girls which does this way better than i could but i think the spirit of it is that that they're all we're all together
1: i thought it was funny sometimes when you would get kind of angry at them or they would let you down and then it's like oh i was I didn't like what Mary had done. You know, and it's like Mary, Mary Wilson Strap tried to kill herself a couple of times. You're like, I didn't like that side of Mary <laughs> or Simone or Sylvia. I mean, it's interesting in approaching these women, you don't really approach them as Madonnas or role models because you also talk about the way in which maybe either their heroines in their book aren't ideal heroines at times or they themselves are not ideal and that seems like one of the pitfalls of looking to artists for moral clarity. Could you talk about that aspect of the book or the things that you working with the your disappointments with them? It's funny because with friends I try very
3: hard to be a sort of friend who gives no advice. I think advice is pointless. Like people just need accompaniment through their lives. There's no point in you telling them what to do. But it's different with these women because because I did hold them in such high esteem. Talking of another outtakes of the book, one of the working titles was No Heroines. And I, because I was thinking about how it was hard to go back to Beauvoir and read some of the stuff that she did with Sartre to the younger girls who were in full to her. I did hold her up as a heroine. I did think, you know, she was wonderful. And I think those disappointments weirdly helped. They helped me write the book because I stopped being so intimidated by them. It helped me in my own life. The things I was doing that I didn't think were very impressive. I don't always behave perfectly. There are people who have always you know, upset with me for all sorts of things and often very justifiably. And so sometimes I was looking to them when I was really feeling like abject, when I was feeling very despairing, didn't think I was a good writer, didn't think I was living well, didn't understand, didn't think I was caring for my mother properly. And so it really helped to see moments where they, people I admired not behaving well and carrying on, you know. And, you know, in their defense, Beauvoir did recognize what she did was wrong. She did stop it. She never did it again. Like there were moments where their disappointing behavior becomes great behavior and things you can emulate because they they look at themselves clearly and they hold themselves to account and they change.
1: I mean, I also thought in the discussion of George Eliot, heroine versus a Jane Austen one, that I would rather have someone who's not the most charming, the most perfect, everything. I mean, that just seems truer to life, you know, that it almost, looks like they did a service in either not living their lives perfectly or making their characters Less than Maybe you could remind us just about this like model woman that someone like Jane Austen put forth in her books.
3: I was thinking a bit about why I didn't include Jane Austen in here, because she is one of my favorites and one that I've spoken, you know, I always talk to friends about her. And my favorite idea would talk a bit about her in the Elliot chapter because talk about persuasion, which is my favorite Austen or I reread quite a lot with Anne Elliot. And Anne Elliot is an interesting person because she she didn't behave well. She let the love person that she loved go because her family put pressure on her. And the wonderful thing is that she gets a second chance with him and has a happy ending. But she is incredibly patient with people around her the entire time. And it is infuriating. And I I admire it and sometimes go to that book for strength when I think that I, you know, need it. But there's no way I don't identify with her in the way that I see Dorothea marrying marrying the wrong man and sort of knowing herself and becoming being a bit sort of messier is sort of easier to come towards. Yeah, it's funny because um, you just can't love someone because they're perfect. Do you? you just don't. You love someone in their faults or because of their faults or with their faults. And that's just as true of books as it is of people, I guess.
2: Although I think just to be fair to Austen, I do think she is well aware of that in terms of you know there's Emma there's Pride and Prejudice many of her characters who are flawed and that is one of the things that is actually quite lovable about them
3: yeah some of them sort of have to learn don't they and other ones just have to like stay still and Emma is one that has to learn but I mean someone like Fanny in Mansfield Park I mean Ooh. <laughs> She's very, very hard to identify with. But she was Austin's favorite, you say is a weird, weird thing.
1: The role of your mother in having given you some of these books, I thought was very moving. And I wondered if you could talk just a little bit about, you know, in reading them and in other things that happened in this period of your life, you know, if you came to see your mother any differently or even her illness or the loss of her differently kind of through these books? It was funny
3: because I didn't choose them thinking of my mother. My mother didn't go to university. My mother didn't have any sort of career. My mother didn't even read some of these fancy books that she passed on. So she would give me Jane Eyre. She'd be like, I think this is the sort of book you might like. She gave me, I've got a copy right here, the Mill on the Floss the Elliot Actually, she had been forced to read that at school, but um she bought things for me and put them in my way and sort of left them there. She never said, like, oh, we're gonna have a reading club about it, or have you read that yet? Or, you know, I paid kind of six pounds for that. Why haven't you read it yet? She just wasn't sort of like that. And you didn't choose the people with my mother in mind, apart from of course, your mother is always there whenever you're trying to go out into the world and make a life for yourself and work with what you have and move away from certain things that you don't like. My mother was like the pop pop music side, like loving George Michael and Ram and like, you know, much more kind of TV and movies and not really literary stuff. But I did think about her a lot when I read read the books. I in reading Milan the Floss, she gave it to me when I was ill once and you know you read it in the pandemic. So that's like 20 years after. And um I just felt like I knew her again in this really, this way that was really unexpected and really special. That was at a point in where she couldn't talk to me. And we, it had been a long time since we'd been mother and daughter and in a conventional sense. I sort of became her mother in the period where she was very ill. I would feed her with a spoon, I would take her to the bathroom, like all the things she did for me when I was a kid. And being able to sort of have a kind of conversation with her through this book was just something I wasn't really expecting. And being like, why did she give me this one? All the Elliots, like, why did she like this character? And that was really, really cool. And I've been thinking about her a lot with this book coming out and wondering what she would think. She died around this time last year. And I I honestly don't know. It's It's a fool's game to imagine what dead people would think. Like, it's a ridiculous thing to start imagining. But... Yeah, I hope that she would have been proud and interested in what I was doing, and also I think she'd be baffled by me. You know, she didn't really expect to produce this sort of like literary daughter, and I uh, I hope that she'd be baffled and interested. I don't even know if she'd read the book. You know, my family are not. Yeah, they sort of let me do my thing.
2: I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your last chapter, is on Elena Ferrante, and of course, you know, the first book and the Ferrante series is my brilliant friend. And much of the chapter is also about how Fronte sort of brings you together with these other women. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role that you have realized that friendships and other people in your life have played in the new,
3: in starting over in the change that you had wanted. Totally. I, they were just essential. I just think I can't imagine a life Without them i it was funny because when i when I first started kind of writing and thinking i I was married, and it would be my husband who would read the first drafts of everything and he would have views and I would discuss it with him as we went along and i and it was very weird when we broke up and I first started to didn't have anyone to show it to, so I'd try different people, try friends and I realized they were I guess my writing just got better when I was read more closely with my friends, not because they're kind of like, they just were more honest and they could see things. And they read me in particular ways that made me eager to write for them and with them. It's interesting you should talk about the Ferrante chapter because I first wrote about Ferrante in the London Review of Books when the final volume of the My Brilliant Friends series came out. And I remember feeling burdened by it. I was surrounded by these women who I thought were incredible, much cleverer than me, could write better than me, why was I the one writing the review? And so the only way I could see of doing that was including them. So I tried to open that review by saying, I anonymized them all, but I all of their different views of things were there. I wanted to capture what it felt like to read among women, together with women, and the excitement of that, the way it brought us together, and what that communal reading could look and feel like on the page, that it wasn't just about me, it was about this moment. I mean, it had that stupid name for anti-fever, but it was real, you know? It wasn't like a kind of marketing thing. Like, we felt it, that's why it was like four books later. And so they now, yeah, I don't even know how to, I'm so, the book is dedicated to a group of my friends. They hold me together, they make me more interesting. I would be sort of hollow without them. Like, I don't, the way I live among them and with them, is a really wonderful, happy life. Like, we shouldn't be scared of being single. (laughs) Like, it's actually fine, you know? (laughs) Not that it needs to be opposed, but, like, it's the women who helped me through my mother's death. Like, the women just understood that instinctively. and, And I'm really, really grateful to them. This book is for them, about them. They're all the way through it.
1: I'm curious if the future you know, that you had handed to you was a more conventional one that most women are supposed to want. And it was, you know, it was about family, having a family, being married, all this stuff. And then maybe that's, you know, still on the table. Maybe it's not, but I would imagine you are looking towards a different future at this point. And I don't think that's spoken about as much either. You know, like how do we recalibrate at a different point in our lives to a different end you know and I'm curious what you know if you have anything to share about what that is about how just your conception of what you're working towards has changed through this process and through actually kind of like doing the thing you wanted to do and and writing a more personal book. The cliche of writing this sort of book where you know
3: you divorce and you have three years that um, at the end you're like oh oops I happened to marry again that hasn't happened to me and I don't really know what my life's going to look like and I don't really recently I heard this phrase again I mean it's just a but you hold your belief slightly like I in some ways I didn't want to box myself in by doing certain ways I don't honestly know I hope that I've learned enough about what makes me happy and what doesn't that I won't but if getting married again made me happy then I wouldn't like not do it because I've written a book about how great my divorce was or whatever, you know, like it it just seems a bit silly to, and I don't know what that looks like. I, I don't know. And I think I will continue reading, looking at different other women writers, talking to my friends, talking to younger people. I have like a whole set of younger friends now here in New York who are living differently and having different ideas about stuff. My friends who are queer, like it's just it. So I think it's just an ongoing thing. And I am reluctant to sort of say that I know, apart from I just got to keep trying things and knowing that some things are not going to work out again, you know, but then I can start again, you know.
2: I was listening to actually a different podcast. The two women who hosted it were talking about how when they read, they kind of, they feel themselves again like even if they read for like five minutes or something, they start to feel like themselves again. And even when they're disoriented or feeling weird or whatever, just reading for a little bit, I feel exactly the same way. That makes me, you know, I was curious because it, you know, as you were saying, like you would sort of go back to reading, you'd go back to these books that you loved or were interested in. Do you identify with that? Or does that sound, does that sound right to you? If it, and if it does, why do you think reading does that?
3: I think it does sound right. And I, I don't know why it is. I mean, one of the, it's just such an interesting idea. I'm thinking, oh, is it because sometimes I read and I feel that I like, am thinking cleverer thoughts that someone has like put together in that way. And I feel very like sparkly and alive and vital and kind of bubbly. And obviously sometimes you read it and you're angry with it or you think something is false there or something is. And I suppose all of those experiences are like a kind of, it's like your thoughts, but better is that you can think, but you can think with against somebody or you're thinking a cleaner, clearer, brighter version of what of thoughts that you've had before. I mean, lots of people talk about one of the pleasures in reading is um, seeing something that you felt set down the page so perfectly. You know, that pleasure of like, oh, I felt that. Oh, my God, that's exactly that. That's how it works. That's how it fits. And I think maybe that is another one thing that makes you know yourself in some particular way. It's funny because reading can also just be things like pass the time I'm reading a high Heist, Patricia Highsmith novel at the minute and I'm just like, oh, are they going to catch him? Is he going to confess? You know, you can just have that pleasure of almost like forgetting your thoughts aren't always that nice and it's quite nice to forget them. But yeah, there's something happens there, doesn't it? Something weird happens there. Just you in the book. Thanks so much, Joanna. No, thank you. What amazing questions. Really, it's a, a wonderful book. I really,
2: I really enjoyed reading it. We've been speaking with Joanna Biggs. Her new book is called A Life of One's Own, Nine Women Writers Begin Again.
1: Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlad.